Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this is a big year the ohio lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. I've shown my calendar to a few people and they go, wait, what is that? And I go, yeah, this is my calendar. Everything's broken down into 15-minute blocks, even if that block is like lunch, right? Or it says like read or go for a walk or something like that. And my calendar is completely broken up into those pieces. And so I end up with a lot more time, productive time, than everybody else does during the day because I don't have to go, hmm, what should I do now? My day is planned in advance. There might be flex time in there, but it'll say flex time, which means like go read something or go watch something or eat lunch with your wife, something like that. But I spend no time, almost no time on switching costs. You know, I don't have to brainstorm what the next project is. I don't have to prioritize anything. I don't have to like react to people on my team making some sort of mistake. Like there's some, there's little bits of that, but it's built into the calendar, I should say. That's such a good, like, uh, uh, I'll call it what it is, which is a life hack. And, and let me ask you a question. Let, let me ask you about that because maybe yeah. I'm going to start doing this now. I've avoided that for years. In yeah. fact, I've like written about um, don't have a to-do list because at any given moment, 
so I had several reasons why you shouldn't do to-do lists, which is A, they're sort of stressful because you don't always get the things done on your to-do list. And B, for me, at any given moment, I sort of know what I should do. I'll just do the thing of highest priority. And if some things I never do, it's because they were never the highest priority. Right. But I'm starting to think that your approach might be better because I, particularly during this weird quote-unquote downtime of this coronavirus lockdown, I'm actually getting overwhelmed with too much work. I never can call people back. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but maybe I need to kind of put these things in the schedule. Like, okay, from 10 to 11, I call people back. From 8 to 9 a.m., I'm going to take a walk. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, and I, I have more questions about your your podcast growth. Yeah. I always wonder about this. How does how does growth happen in, in a business, in, in an application, in a podcast? What would you say you've used to go from like, you know, a million to six million downloads a month? What were your growth techniques? Yeah, no, here's the thing about the internet is that the whole, that zero software on the internet is rocket science. Like that's the whole reason the, the, the world wide web got popular is because it actually there, you don't have to be a sophisticated programmer to do sophisticated things here. So there's, there's absolutely, I have never seen anything on the web that I consider even on a scale of zero to 10, but above a five in terms of difficulty. So all these features are easy to program and it's just a matter of doing it. Like, if you think about it, you know, this might be even interesting for recording, but, it, but if you think about it, look at all the best companies in the past 25 years, none of them are above the level of freshman computer science <laughs> in terms of development. Like Twitter is trivial. Facebook is slightly, you know, Facebook in the early versions was trivial. And now there's some stuff that's a tiny bit more sophisticated, but not much more. Speech recognition is maybe a little more complicated, but that's not a big thing on the web anyway, but that's a little more complicated. But I don't know, Uber, trivial. Airbnb, trivial. There's no, to be, to business models, the complexity of business models has nothing to do with the complexity of the software. Which, no. which should give encouragement to people who are not developers. Dude, I got to tell you, we, oh, you know, we could, we could, you could, we could start doing this kind of thing. In fact, what, we could start yeah. that way if you want. You want to start? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're sorry. We're recording. Okay, cool. So one thing that I think is kind of funny, and I know that everyone says, I thought of this before it became a thing, but uh, it's a shame we didn't meet maybe when I lived in New York 10 plus years ago, because I remember trying to get taxis and I lived downtown. And so sometimes on some days, especially weekends, you just, there just wouldn't be that many taxis or you'd wait like 10 minutes. And then I lived on a street that never had traffic because I lived near the stock exchange. So I had to walk out and I thought, you know, you can get taxis to come to my house, but nobody's just going to drive by Wall and Broad because it's blocked off and you have to oh tell my the God. police to move. 10 years ago, you lived on Wall and Broad? Yeah. 10 years ago today, I lived on Wall and Broad. No Did kidding. you live on 15 um, Broad Street? I lived at 15 Broad. We lived in the same fucking building. What? Yeah. It, it, it had the bowling alley. It had the... Yeah. Uh, the squash court, it had the basketball court, yeah. it had the ping pong table upstairs. Yeah, I played ping pong every single day there. Like I would day trade during the day and when I would took breaks, I would play ping pong or go to the basketball court yeah. or go to the bowling alley. It, That's crazy. Kidding. So we must have run into each other before we knew each other because I lived there in 2006, 2007, 2008 or something like that. 
Oh, wait, I lived there in 2009, 2010. Oh, so you moved in right after I left. That's really funny. So we probably... Yeah. That's I, funny. I lived in the um, Chelsea Hotel in 2000, roughly 2006 to 2009. And uh, I was going out with somebody and she visited... She was a therapist, but she herself was going to therapy also. Well, that's good. And she, she visited the my place at the Chelsea Hotel and her therapist told her, oh, you need to this guy is no good for you. He He's not putting down roots. He's living in a hotel, but I had lived in the Chelsea hotel all through the nineties. So when I was getting a divorce, the cho going back to the Chelsea was my roots. Like that was my, my home that I was returning to where I lived before I had been married. So I ended up moving literally within weeks to 15 broad. Cause it was an unbelievable building. Cause no one wanted to live down there during the financial no. crisis. It was depressing. And, uh, the, so the rents were somewhat cheap. The amenities were amazing. All the buildings down there have amazing amenities to attract people because nobody was living there. Right. And it was the first time I'd ever rented an apartment on my own as an adult. Yeah, I that was probably my first, you know, non-college kid place too. It's funny. It's funny that you said you, living in a hotel was going back to your roots. It reminds me of some like Batman Bane thing where it's like, oh, you think... You know, you're unfamiliar with chaos. I was born in it. Like, oh, you think living in a hotel is weird. I've this is my normal. This is my baseline. It's it's true. Like the, the Chelsea Hotel, which is kind of um, if, if people Google it, it was a very odd hotel in New York. It's been around since 1884, but it just was shut down in the past few years, unfortunately, to to do the usual thing, build condos, which yeah. is going to turn out to be a big mistake for them. But uh, it was a crazy place to live. It was the only building I'd ever lived in where I was. I would even go on vacations with the other people who were in the building. Like there was a real culture around living in the hotel. And I, but there was also the downsides too. Like, you know, my, my daughters and I would go up and down the stairs to, to go to my place. And, you know, I'd have to kind of cover their eyes or, or make them walk carefully. If there was like a condom on the staircase, oh, like yeah. it was, it was a seedy hotel as well. It was both uh, culturally high end, but seedy at the same time. Isn't that like a lot of things in New York? Like, Oh, I live in alphabet city. Oh, do, how often do you get stabbed? Well, you know, and then they paint like masterpieces or they're like working on something amazing. I, I was, the reason we bring up this weird uh, tangent is because I think, look, what if we met back then? Cause I remember trying to get taxis down there and you couldn't, right? Cause they blocked off the road after September yeah. 11th and no taxi would just drive by these police checkpoints. Cause it's a pain in the butt. And so my friends and I were like, wouldn't it be cool if instead of calling the taxi company and explaining this every time I could just drop a pin to the driver. So we had drivers that we knew and we'd be like, here, can you come pick us up? And I thought, oh, well, he's in Brooklyn right now. He's not going to show up here to get us. So then we just had to call the taxi company or have the doorman do it. It was a huge pain. And so basically the, we, my friend had found this app called Taxi Magic and it was awful. I don't know if you remember it. It no. only worked in New York. It was terrible. It never got updated. Half the taxi drivers that you would call on it would be like, they did, were confused because it got used so rarely they wouldn't even notice they got like a ping on this map. And it would track the taxis. You could call it. It was just Uber. It was just a piss poor version of Uber. And I remember contacting the, the, the dev and he said, yeah, I got to fix all this stuff. The problem is I don't know how to fix most of the stuff because I'm, you know, I'm only sort of beginning learning how to program. I just came up with this idea. And it was, it was really interesting because then he sold it to somebody else, I want to say, and that guy wasn't a dev, but fixed all the business issues they had with it and then just never updated the dang app. So they had all these problems. And I thought, you know, going back to what you were just saying, if you had one decent dev that was even part-time working on this, 
we would have had Uber years and years and years. It would have just been for taxis, most likely. So it might not have taken off. And, you know, Uber is a confluence of a lot of things, you know, such as everyone having a smartphone, et cetera. But there was a time, and I'm sure you remember this too, where Uber was only in big cities and it was only for black cars and it was really expensive. And yeah. it was pretty much like lawyers and investment bankers used it. And that was it. Well, well, you know, it's interesting though, because the, the limitations of starting a business are never the software development or the t unless you're, you know, I'm talking specifically about like internet or mobile based companies. Yeah. The limitations are never software. They're never uh, the technology. You know, maybe it's things like, oh, our mobile apps, you know, it's our smartphones popular. But now, you know, that was a one time thing that around 2010 to 2012 smartphones basically enveloped the earth. You know, they started out around the iPhone with around 2007 and then boom, within five years, everybody had one, but nothing else is sophisticated. Like take Google as an example. So I remember one time in 1990, in 1993 or 1994, I was addicted to playing chess on the internet. I would play literally 23 hours a day. Like I couldn't, I had, I was, unhappy at work. I was unhappy in my relationship at the time. And I was just playing online chess all day long. I would lock my office door and just play 23 hours a day. And I remember one time I'm walking outside, uh, my office. I was going to the bathroom in between one minute chess games. And I ran into this guy and I'm like, what are you doing here at like midnight, you know, on a Tuesday? And he said, well, I'm trying to write this software that takes random web pages and figures out what they're about. I'm hoping to get some government funding. And the web was like brand new. There was maybe, you know, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, and then, you know, um, the place in Switzerland where it was all developed. There was only four places with websites. And I was thinking to myself, man, this guy's a loser, like staying here all night just to hope to get government funding with this, with this web thing, like yeah. trying to translate pages on this web. And his computer was named lycos.cs.cmu.edu. So he built this software. He called it Lycos. It became a search engine. We would all use it actually. Like if I wanted to find a web pages on chess, I'd go to his log into his computer, type chess, and it would show me the three web pages at the time that were about chess. <laughs> and Lycos became a $2 billion. So CMU spun it out to CMGI, which was a big internet investor. And then CMGI took it public. My friend was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and boom, you know, it was the very first public search engine. And the, again, the technology was not hard. Here's what he did. He would snag a random page off the internet and he would just look at like, uh, oh, the number of times the word appeared on that page and the higher it appeared on the page, the better off it was. So it ranked higher. Right. And the only difference between that and Google, like the infrastructure was the same. So you had this, what's called a spider crawled on from web page to web page to web page and would put it in the database and say, okay, this is about chess. This is about Bill Clinton. This is about blah, blah, blah. And the only, the main difference between Google and that was the same infrastructure, but Google had a slightly different algorithm. Google would say how many other pages that seem to be about chess would link to this page that seems to be about chess. So chess is mentioned, but then it would rank it according to how many other pages that seem to be about chess would link to it. And then that's how it would rank it. And 
Google themselves, they Larry Page, and people always say, oh, Larry Page invented the algorithm. No, some other guy invented that algorithm and got the patent. Google took the patent from him and improved it. That guy who invented the patent, he was working for a mainstream media company. He wanted to do a, his own search engine and they're like, nah, nah, it has nothing to do with our business. So he moved to China, he quit that company. He moved to China and created Baidu, which became wow. the largest search engine in China. So the same algorithm spun off uh, Google and Baidu because it wasn't that sophisticated, it was easy to do. And then the media company that rejected that guy, I think his name is, um, I forget his name, his last name is Lee, I think, L-I. But uh, the, 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 the ma mainstream media company that rejected doing the search engine that could have been Google or Baidu was the Wall Street Journal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but again, it just underlines the fact that like that algorithm takes about, again, a good programmer one day to implement and all the other infrastructure, like a web spider, the infrastructure for a search engine, all of that was public domain. So that was like for free. So that I remember those days or those early days, like Alta Vista, Lycos, I don't know, Dogpile was one of them. I don't, I don't know the difference, but I think one was, they were like, oh, we're faster. Oh, we have more stuff indexed because, you know, we crawl every day. Whereas I think now, of course, Google's crawling like a billion pages a day or whatever the hell, yeah. you know, is going on. But back then, I remember there, I remember seeing notices like the site will slow down from one to 3 a.m. Eastern time because that's when we crawl the web. And it was like, holy moly, like they're just doing like a two hour quick update every day or every other day or every week or whatever. You know, this is like the 90s. Yeah. And, and, and bandwidth was, was slow then. Like we wouldn't be able to do a podcast then like this where no we're, we're looking at each other on video while talking and recording. And, but again, like for any idea you do, either the technology is easy or the technology will eventually get there because the, the, you know, the internet computers are still getting faster and the internet is still getting faster and technology around it. Like, you know, smartphones and smart devices are, are getting more and more pervasive in society. So, you know, it, the interesting thing, so I don't know if you've ever, uh, started a company where you had to develop software as a part of it, but like software programmers, like you mentioned how, uh, one company should just have a good proficient software developer. So the way software developers work, I always think is it doesn't work like a bell curve, meaning if, if you and I were software developers, it's unlikely that either of us would be 10% better than the other. We'd either be kind of equal or one of us would be 10 times better. Interesting. So, so it's like an yeah, exponential it, increase in skill. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, a, what's called a power law distribution, sort of mm. like earthquakes. So earthquakes on a, on a normal statistics, earthquakes should never happen, but on a power law, earthquakes are going to sometimes happen. So basically it's like, it's actually like podcasts. Like when I go over people's podcast numbers, it's always 10 X. So somebody either has a hundred thousand downloads a month, you know, you know, give or take uh, a million downloads a month, give or take 10 million downloads a month. So it's another one of those, you know, depending on what tier you're in, um, you're not going to be 50%. You might be 50% more, but you're not going to be like, I don't know anybody with 2 million downloads a month instead of 1 million, but I know people who go from a million, million and a half to 10 million all of a sudden, you know, you know so that's when you, when you make a lot, when you make an improvement, you know, you, it's hard to improve incrementally. You have to improve, uh, uh, in a, in order of magnitude. 
That's true. You know, I remember doing the Jordan Harbinger show and being like, yeah, we hit a million downloads a month. And then it was like three months later, we were at two. And then three months later, we were at four. I don't even think we were at three for like a sneeze. Right. And then we just went up to four and then you start to taper off somewhere around like five or six for, for reasons. I don't even know, like uh, reasons unknown, you know, having to do with how things can scale to a certain level easily, depending on how often you release podcasts or whatever. And, and then from there, you realize like, oh, the next shows that are bigger than mine are like Ben Shapiro, who has, you know, probably like 10 or 20 million. And then above him is this sort of massive leap, Joe Rogan, which has just an absolute ton more. And you see guys like, you know, Tim Ferriss, Ben Shapiro, whatever, are sort of at a similar level of downloads. But you don't, I don't know that many people that have like 1 million. I know tons of people that have five, six, and then a bunch of people at 10, 20. And then everybody else has like 200,000 or like 10,000. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, yeah, I know a lot in the 10,000 level. I know a lot of people in the 100,000 level. And again, they might have 120,000, 150,000, maybe even 200. I know people at the 1 million level. And again, it could be one to two to three. And then I remember one time I was talking to um, Stephen Dubner, uh, who does the Freakonomics podcast, and he co-wrote the, the Freakonomics books with right. Stephen Levitt. And Stephen told me that I, I remember the time he was Freakonomics podcast was getting about a million downloads an episode. Wow, which that's was great. which was great. This was like five six years ago, and and they do I think they do one episode a week, and then he came out with one book. Uh, I think it was called Think Like a Freak. It was sort of the the third Freakonomics book or the fourth Freakonomics book, and NPR not NPR WNYC really promoted the book and he went from a million downloads to about 10 to 15 million downloads or maybe i'm getting the numbers wrong. he maybe went from 100,000 downloads of an episode to a million and a half downloads an episode and so that made him 6 million or more plus the backlog so about 10 million per month and so that was an example of an an external event happened and he went up an order of magnitude so i think i always wonder about this how does how does growth happen in, in a business, in, in an application, in a podcast. And there's two ways. One is internal. So you, you make some format change and people like it. So now you just go from, you know, hypothetically, let's just say 100,000 downloads an episode to 150,000 downloads an episode. But then there's the external hit, like in the Freakonomics case, WNYC promoting a book. Or let's take Jordan Peterson's a great example. He became uh, a, a national polarizing figure after some of his comments yeah. about, you know, the, the, you know, regulating language on, on transgenders and so on. So he went from essentially nobody knew who he was to boom, selling a million copies of his book. And that was an external, a little bit internal, but really external. The fact that he became scandalous. So I, I sort of think, you know, that's, that's sort of my model of, of growth. Like sometimes you, if you're growing any product or, 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 you know, an application like a podcast, I guess there's three models. One is internal growth. What can I do to improve this? There's external growth. What can I do to get outside interest that will, that will, you know, create a huge audience. And then there's a third, which is uh, viral growth, which is what can I do to create sort of an exponential effect? Like two friends will tell two friends who tell two friends. And uh, what, what do you, what do you, what would you say you've used to go from like, you know, 
a million to six million downloads a month. What were, what were your growth techniques? You know, it, it's funny because I thought, oh, okay, I've got to come up with some sort of like really clever marketing and things like that. And yes, I work on marketing sometimes, but since I'm not a marketer by trade, although any business owner has to kind of take up that mantle and, and do good things with marketing or you're just delusional, um, I decided, okay, I, right now, until I figure that whole thing out, this is a, you know, a year or two ago, I'm going to just focus on making really good content because in many ways I consider that like the art, that's the craft of hosting a great interview or hosting a great podcast. So for the Jordan Harbinger show specifically, what I was doing was thinking, okay, value to the listener. What can I work on? So now every episode of my show has worksheets that I have created, not just show notes, but like worksheets, the takeaways from each guest that I put into a worksheet. And then I was asking my audience to share. So these all sound really basic, but what was happening was I was also outworking other people in terms of prep. So I will like read, I, I know you probably know this, but like a lot of hosts, they don't read the book and journalists are the same way. They don't read the book of the person that they're interviewing. And the reason they don't is they don't have time or they're doing like a 15 minute piece on somebody. So they're not going to be able to include that anyway. But with podcasting, we have the luxury of creating a conversation that's an hour, hour and a half if we want to. So I would do like 20 hours of prep. And I knew that I didn't have to be a particularly talented host or interviewer. I could do a better job as long as I outworked people. That was my strategy in law school, by the way. It was just like, everybody's really smart. Everyone works uh, a decent amount. But if I like triple the amount I'm willing to work, um, I can actually sort of get to a, the top few percent by outworking everybody. Because no matter how smart and talented you are, if you're mailing it in, you're not going to do as well as somebody who spends like, you know, 10 hours doing something and you spend like 10 minutes. So, right. And, uh, but by the way, I'm, I'm taking notes a little bit because I think that's a really important point in that I might, and I, I, I think everybody who's successful probably goes through, through that. Like my first job, my first real job, I worked at HBO. And at first I was just sort of screwing up and I didn't really understand why. And I felt like, man, I feel like I'm smart and talented, but it's not really happening for me here. Mm. And then one simple adjustment, which is, I just got to work an hour before everyone else. And that adds up incredibly quickly. Oh yeah. Where where suddenly I was creating so much more product than everyone else that it just became a natural that that you know I catapulted above everyone else. And it's not I don't mean this in a kind of Machiavellian way. Yeah, sure. It was just like a natural thing. And I think that's really important like you know, of course, there's the, the the concept that you have to work effectively, also. But assuming everybody's working roughly effectively, you know, everyone who's passionate about something is working roughly with the same amount of effectiveness. It really does boil down to, hey, I'm going to just do an hour more, and that compounds exponentially. Actually, it doesn't. It just it doesn't compound linearly. It compounds exponentially. You know, that's an easy distinction to overlook too. I think there's going to be a lot of people that might say. Uh, okay, so whatever, I don't know. It means it goes up higher than in a straight line. But the results that come from that are really extreme. So th that I think is one reason that people can do an, uh, an extra hour of work each day. R it really does add up. I, I, I've shown my calendar to a few people and they go, wait, what is that? And I go, yeah, this is my calendar. Everything's broken down into 15 minute blocks. Even if that block is like lunch, right? Or it says like read, or go for a walk or something like that. And my calendar is completely broken up into those pieces. And so I end up with a lot more time, productive time than everybody else does during the day. Cause I don't have to go, Hmm, what should I do now? 
at my days planned in advance, there might be flex time in there, but it'll say flex time, which means like go read something or go watch something or eat lunch with your wife, something like that. But I spend no time, almost no time on switching costs. You know, I don't have to brainstorm what the next project is. I don't have to prioritize anything. I don't have to like react to people on my team making some sort of a mistake. Like there's some, there's little bits of that, but it's built into the calendar, I should say. So, That's such a good, like, uh, uh, I'll call it what it is, which is a life hack. And and let me ask you a question. Let, let me ask you about that because maybe yeah. I'm going to start doing this now. I've avoided that for years. In yeah. fact, I've ever written about um, don't have a to-do list because at any given moment, so I had several reasons why you shouldn't do to-do lists, which is A, they're sort of stressful because you don't always get the things done on your to-do list. And B, for me, at any given moment, I sort of know what I should do. I'll just do the thing of highest priority. And if some things I never do, it's because they were never the highest priority. Right. But I'm starting to think that your approach might be better because I, particularly during this weird quote-unquote downtime of this coronavirus lockdown, I'm actually getting overwhelmed with too much work. I never can call people back. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but maybe I need to kind of, put these things in the schedule. Like, okay, from 10 to 11, I call people back. From 8 to 9 a.m., I'm going to take a walk, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's a, a life-changing thing. For me, um, I had to do it because I working from home when I started 13 years ago, so this whole you know lockdown thing is like not that new for me. Obviously, there's a lot going on other than just having to stay home, but like working from home is not new for me. So right. what I did for years when I was first started podcasting and things like that is I would wake up kind of whenever, cause I was in my twenties and then I'd be like, Oh, I'm kind of hungry, make breakfast. I'd probably check my email or whatever, check social media. Then I'd be like, Oh, uh, I want to go to the gym. So then I go to the gym, then I come home, shower up, eat lunch. Then I'd be like, Oh man, it's 2 PM. I better like do some work. What should I do? Uh, what's the easiest thing that I can think of right now? I'll just check out more email or I'll like maybe return a phone call or, oh, look, my friend's calling me. I'll just pick that up and chat. And then it's like five o'clock and I go, eh, let me just finish like one or two small things. I better get more done tomorrow because a lot's piling up. And that was like my entire life. And that was yeah. bad. That is, that is bad. And that's how I'm starting to feel now. And I, I guess I've been feeling that way for a year, but I've, I've balanced it a yeah. little bit. Like, you know, you're, you're, you know, and I, I have more questions about your your podcast growth. Yeah, but your your kind of benefit or advantage is that you're pretty much a hundred percent focused on podcasting. And whoever told you or whatever instinct you had, which is to just quadruple down on the podcast, really paid off for you. Whereas I feel like I do not that I'm a dilettante, but I do too many things that I love doing. So I'm a writer and I'm, I'm, I write articles every day. I'm writing a book right now. I'm a podcaster. So, and I do the same thing as you. I prepare for at least, I don't know about 20 hours. Realistically, I think I prepare about eight to 10 hours that's per. A, that's plenty. Yet. You're probably just a faster reader than me. Honestly, like at that level, you're probably just reading faster than me. And, 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 and just the point about reading the book, I agree. Most people don't read the book and I think that's a kind of a, a shame because I'm not, I'm not, you and I both, we're not podcasting because this was the absolute best way for us to make a money, no. like a shitload of money. Like that just is not, you shouldn't go into podcasting for the money unless you're going to be a Joe Rogan. I mean, you'll make money if you're in the top two tiers, but it's not like 
riches. Like if you're smart enough to do this well, you should, you know, invest your money or do something else. But, uh, 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 you know, so I'm not in it for just, uh, well, I want to say I have a podcast. I, I really just want to learn things. I want to read a book. And if I like the book, I want to be able to call the author and say, hey, I have questions for you. Come on my podcast. And and so that's been a really amazing thing just for my knowledge and in, in growth in life is doing a podcast. But but I also, so I, I write, I, I do this podcast, which takes its time. I do stand-up comedy, which, you know, it seems like it only takes 15 minutes to go up on stage and tell jokes. Yeah, right. But yeah, you got to spend it's at least three or four hours of prep before those 15 minutes. And then it's about two hours of wind down and, and kind of debriefing after those 15 minutes. And so it's like a five hour thing every evening that I do comedy. And so if you add, and then I also am a, a business guy, like I have investments, I have businesses that I run, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of things. Uh, so it becomes overwhelming and, uh, well, that's, I've had, I have a yeah, that's trouble a lot of balancing it. That's a lot of stuff, man. I mean, I had, a, I get it. I don't do that many things. Like maybe I just like need to get a life, but I don't really, I can't really, cause I have an eight month old kid. So I've got that and then I've got my show and everyone's like, Oh, you need to make a product and sell it and you'll make more money. And I'm like, eh, I can't do that. Cause that's going to get distracting. And like there, I have to be really, really merciless about not doing too much because it is really easy to dive into too many things and then not prioritize important things. And I'm not saying you should cut out hobbies. So if people are listening and they're like, oh man, I do stand up comedy and I do a podcast and I write, I should quit one of those things. You really don't have to do that. But I think a lot of people find that I think when you really dig into your calendar, oh, oh here's, here's a good point. Most people can never actually diagnose the problem because they don't have a calendar. So there's no actual written record of where their time goes. So you can't do any sort of audit on your time and where you're spending it if you're not actually using the calendar because you just go, oh yeah, you know, yesterday, like I spent some time with my kid and then I went to the gym and then I, you know, had to go to the office for a while and then I did a podcast and then I did some standup. Like you just kind of have this sort of mental diary. But then if you were to put things in your calendar and when I make people do this exercise, like when I'm teaching, people productivity stuff, or I'm doing consulting for some company. If I make people keep a calendar of everything, um, social and business, we find the weirdest things. Like, let me think of an example here. One person realized that they were spending a ton of time on social media. No big surprise there, obviously, but it was like hours every day. You know, we use the, what is it called? Like screen time app on their phone. And it was insane. It was like 10 hours, you know, a week or something was spent on like Instagram. And then, uh, other people found really bizarro stuff like, oh yeah, you know, when I take my kid to soccer games or whatever it was or whatever sport the kid was doing, they weren't even watching the sport. They were then going on uh, social media and spending that time. So they were like disengaged while they thought they were spending time with their kid. And then they weren't even feeling like they were spending time relaxing, even though they considered social media their relaxing time because they were doing that at the same time they knew they should have been doing something else. So it was like stressful and not productive at the same time, which is like the worst combination of, of, of anything you could possibly do to spend time. Right. Like, and if you think about it, that probably describes the behavior of the entire U S population. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it certainly was accurate for me up and until I figured out where my time was going. And then it, I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, That's a great idea. I, I highly recommend it. Even if you don't keep the calendar up forever, if you just do it for like a month, you'll find 
oh, wait a second, all these things that I'm doing that I think I'm being productive, I'm really wasting a crap load of time. Or there's a ton of switching costs because they're like, what's the thing I have to do now? Oh, I got to call these people back. So you make all these phone calls, but nobody answers because you didn't schedule the call. So then you put the phone down and then you're like, oh, I guess I'll start writing now. But then your phone's ringing because everyone's calling you back and then you're distracted. It takes you four hours to write an article instead of an hour and a half or two hours. Well, you know, and, and that's really important too because if you're doing anything that requires mental, you know, flexibility and, and focus, uh, any distraction, well, like writing is a great example, but any, or reading, any distraction requires now 20 minutes to get back into the mode you were in before the distraction. So on average, as studies show, and uh, yeah, you can't. You it makes sense that you should schedule these things so you're not distracted. Like, like I'm in the final stages of writing a book, and I realized I've never been able to write a book in my life in New York City. Like, you know, and I've written twenty books, but I've always left the city to write the book. And now I'm in the city writing this book, and it's a different kind of experience because there's so many distractions. You know, uh, I have to navigate that. But I'm I'm uh, going back to the podcast growth. I do remember when you were, you know, starting the Jordan Harbinger show and you were very, you were very, um, I don't want to say aggressive about marketing because that doesn't describe you at all, but you were very forthcoming about asking for help. Yeah. That so, was tough. I mean, it was kind of tough actually. Yeah, but, but you were very good at it and it was very appropriate. And I'm, and I'm sure just like, just like I responded to your emails, I'm sure many people did and and helped you out. And that probably, like, what would you say were your biggest contributors to growth? Because you did something amazing, which was you had a podcast and an audience, then you left that one and relaunched from scratch a new one and and built up even bigger. So, and that was just a couple of years ago. Yeah. So what, what were you, would you say were the biggest growth hacks there? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say 
the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The the biggest kind of growth, quote unquote, hacks are going to be calling on other people for help. Because no matter how much you do on your own, it's really, really hard to replicate what the the network effect of being able to ask for help. So I always say on the on the Jordan Harbinger show, I always say dig the well before you get thirsty, which is not something I made up. I think it's like a book title from 1997, Harvey McKay or one of those I, guys. I, I'm gonna quote. I'm gonna use it as your quote though. That's who, fine. Who gives a shit about Harvey? <laughs> yeah, sorry, Harvey. Wait, dig, dig, dig the well before you get thirsty. Ah, and he probably it. took that from like the Old Testament or something. Who knows where right. that's from? Right? Like, who knows? Um, but what that means is you have to build relationships before you need them, even if it feels like you're starting from scratch. And a lot of people don't do that. I mean, how often have you gotten an email or had to unfortunately send an email? Well, let's, let's say, let's start from getting the email cause it's less shameful, but like people will get right to you and they'll go, Hey, James, long time, no speak. Hope you're doing well. How are the kids? Are you still living in New York? By the way, I have a book coming out and I could really use your help. And you're like, ah, this freaking piece of work is emailing me. Like, who is this guy again? Oh, right. Some guy that I talked to like three years ago and he was supposed to do me a favor and then he like flaked and I've never heard from him again. And now he's like asking me to get him on the show and market his book or something like that. Like we've all had that and it's awkward and it actually scares people away from digging the well before they get thirsty because they go, I don't want to sound like that guy or that girl. And the reason you won't sound like that guy or that girl is if you dig the well before you get thirsty. So you and I have been in touch for a long time and we were in touch pretty regularly. So last few months, pre-corona, which seems like forever ago now, you had launched Think Like a Billionaire, right? And you yeah. did that thing in San Francisco at um, Scribd and you're like, hey, will you come out? Or they asked me, hey, will you come out and do a show uh, or an interview stage thing, whatever you want to call it with James Altucher? And I said, sure. And it wasn't like this weird ask because we probably talked three, four months prior at the longest yeah. before that. So it, was, it wasn't it was weird. But imagine coming out of the blue and being like, hey, will you do this? And, and the person has to like try to remember where they know you from. It's weird. That won't happen though if you're in regular contact with people. So the trick is to be in regular contact with as many people as possible so that you can help them, not just so they can help you, but so you can help them. So me asking, I think like, I, I made something like 140 phone calls the month I had to launch the Jordan Harbinger show. 
And it was easy enough to make those 140 phone calls because I, I emailed or texted those 140 people and like 130 of those 140 people I'd probably talked to either via text, email, or phone in the past like six to eight months. So let me, let me ask you about that because, so yes, I have a lot of people that I keep in touch with and, and yes, by the way, I know what you mean. Like sometimes actually some of the most successful people I know are very transactional. Like they want something from you. They write that email and then occasionally they return the favor Yeah, depending on where you are in the hierarchy. And somehow some, some of these people end up being the most successful, although you, that could just be, um, you know, some sort of, um, selection bias. Like we don't know how many transactional people like that fell off the radar ultimately. Yeah. But, uh, uh, how do you keep in touch with 140 people regularly? Like do you have it in your schedule from two to 3 PM? I'm going to text 15 people. Yeah. So every, I made a whole course about this and I don't want to shamelessly plug anything. We can do it later. Maybe. No, no, let's shamelessly plug. I don't care. Oh, okay. So I have a course called six minute networking and, uh, it's because five minute networking was taken and it's, so it's called six minute networking and it's free. I don't sell it or anything. I give it away as like, that's, I guess my like value add, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's at jordanharbinger.com slash course. And again, it's, it, there's no upsell. You don't have to like enter your credit card or any BS like that. But what it does is it teaches you a set of drills that can be done in a few minutes a day when normally you'd just be like dicking around on Instagram or social media. And some of the drills are like things like every day I get up in the morning and I, I obviously, like everyone else, I'll check my phone at some point. And around 10 a.m., that's not when I get up, by the way, just for the record. But around 10 a.m., I'll send, I call it Connect Four, and I'll send four texts to people. But it's not just random it's not just random people who pop into my head. Sure, one of those people might be that, but I open up my phone and I scroll all the way to the bottom of my text messages. That's where all those old, like, dead threads are, where it's like some guy you went out to lunch with in San Diego during a conference two years ago and you haven't talked since because you, like, forgot to save their number, but you texted them your name and they're like, hey, cool, nice to meet you. It's Jordan Harbinger here. So you can send that person a text or it's just, like, an old friend that, that texted you a million years ago you can send a text that says like, hey, Jordan, I've done a really crappy job of keeping in touch. Uh, I noticed I haven't talked to you in like two years. Just wanted to see how you're doing. I just had an eight-month-old kid. This lockdown's driving me crazy. I don't know if I told you I got married in 2017. Since we talked last in 2016, I can't remember if you met my wife, blah, 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 whatever. Tell me what's new with you. And then you say no rush on the reply. I know everyone's busy. And the reason you say no rush on the reply is because... Uh, most of the time, if you hear from somebody and it's been like two years, they're going to think, is it going to be Herbalife or Scientology? Like, what does this person want? You know? Right. So I always want to destroy urgency. So sale, people are trying to sell you something. They do that urgency crap, whether it's real or not, where they go, amazing opportunity. I've only got three spots left in my super cool mastermind thing that no one's actually signed up for that's overpriced that I've never run before. Like, they do the sales copy. But- for, for this, you want to destroy urgency, saying like, hey, if you don't get a chance to reply, don't worry about it. Because people are trying to sell you something, they don't typically break urgency. It's bad sales techniques to do that. So actually, that'll increase your response rate. And so you break urgency, you use their name so they don't think it's a mass text. Like you don't want to go like, hey, friend, it's been three years. What's going on? Here's my update. You want to use their name and you want to sign it with your first and last name so you can avoid problems like the one I just had where somebody said, hey, Jordan, it's Sam. How are you? And I said, hey, Sam, what's going on? And the whole time we're like chatting. I'm trying to figure oh, out yeah. who the hell Sam was. 
And finally, That's I said, well, 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 man, good talking, but I got to admit, I can't remember where we met. And she goes, man, it's Samantha. And I was like, okay, I, I legit have no clue who you are. And she's like, oh, sorry, I'm the ad agent from, I don't know, like whatever company. And we met at FinCon in 2016. And I was like, cool, I'm, I got to admit, I have no clue who you were. And I still don't. And she's like laughing about it because she's a nice person. But you don't want that to happen because it's not a good catch up if you have no clue who you're talking to. That's so funny. And you know, it's funny because again, and everybody, I find that everybody has uh, a similar framework. They just might do it in different ways. So for instance, one way I do what you do, like you said, you scroll to the bottom of your text messages, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes I'll, I'll go back on my Gmail five to seven years, find an email that I never responded to and respond as if I had just gotten the email. So there's kind of like an element of humor to it yeah. when they get the email. Like, like someone will ask me to lunch in 2012 and I never had responded. And then I'll, I'll hit reply and I'll say, um, okay, you around next Tuesday. <laughs> How about this place? And, uh, uh, usually people get a kick out of that. And, and it, it kind of covers over the fact that I never responded eight years ago. Right. They're like, I, dude, uh, I moved to Djibouti in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, so, but, and then, and then, um, your, your idea of not asking for anything, this sort of reverse sales technique, I do that as well. Like I very, even if I'm like a nut, one networking technique I do is I'll give an idea. Like, let's say I'll write to somebody and I'll say, Hey man, love your podcast. Here's five ideas uh, that I would do if I were you. Um, hope all is well, no need to respond. Good luck. Yeah. And so it's very much like just giving and there's no, possibility that I come across as being salesy. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think the, the key here is not necessarily the format, although you should always use your name and you should use their name so they don't think it's like a mass text and they can remember you. But the trick is doing it consistently and systemizing it. Because if you if you do that mm. once and you do it like twice a month or something, it's okay, but it's it's better than nothing, but it's not great. If you do it every day at the same time and you do it with one to four people, and you systemize it at the same time, you'll do it every day. And that's, it's always these compound effects. So it's like, look, if you're, if you yes. text one person a day, cause maybe you don't have a huge network or of, of older contacts. So, and you take weekends off, that's five people a, a week. That's 20 people a month. Let's say you have a 50% response rate, which is low, but like not totally unrealistic. Usually it's like 75%, but for the sake of math, let's say you get a 50% response rate. Um, now you're getting responses from 10 people. Most of them are just going to be like, Hey, I got a dog. Here's a photo. By the way, I got to go to a meeting Bye. and one or two of those people might be like, Oh, okay. It's good to be in touch. I actually remember being kind of cool with you. Like let's keep in better touch. What happens is over a period of months, you end up getting a, a lot of random opportunities. And I put random in invisible air quotes here because they're not that random. I'll, uh, real example I'll text like 80 people a month. Again, it takes like five minutes a day, not even. And once or twice a month, I'll get some ping back from somebody, usually from the previous month or months that will say, hey, Jordan, are you still doing speaking gigs? Or do you still do any kind of consulting? I've got, my company wants to start a podcast. We don't know what to do. And I'll be like, yeah, I'm, you know, for your company, Bausch and Lom or whatever, you know, it's going to be like a thousand bucks an hour, but I can get them set up with gear get the right producer, help them design the show, whatever it is. That's not a real example of a company, but it's like the type of company. And they'll be like, great. Um, here's a retainer for 20 hours. Let us know when we need to refill it. And I'm like 20 hours, like we're probably not going to need that, but I just made like 20 grand consulting remotely 
for some big Fortune 500 company, that person would never have picked me for that job. They would have farmed it out to someone else. And usually I'll say, hey, how did this end up falling in my lap? And they'll say, well, after your text, a couple days later, I went into a meeting and the sales guys were saying, podcasting is the latest thing. We need to find a podcaster. And I said, I know a guy because we just talked. And they said, reach out to him. And they, that's how you got the gig. Or like, that's how you got the speaking engagement. And someone, I, another real example uh, from a few weeks ago is someone said, I'm walking, pre-COVID, I'm walking into our, our quarterly sales uh, meeting and we're going to do an annual event. Would you, do you do keynotes? Because you're top of mind for these people now. So right. if you can stay top of mind with 80 people a month, even if they're not really responding and they're not like, let's be best friends now, you're keeping top of mind with hundreds of people per year, just doing something that takes you like two to four minutes per day. And those opportunities start to come back to you. Even if 99 out of hundred people never responded to you or never got you any kind of opportunity, it's still worthwhile because the one that does come back could be like a job offer for you or a friend. You could meet someone that becomes a close friend of yours. You could meet a business partner. You can get a speaking gig that pays you $15,000, $20,000. You know, like that's worth doing. Jordan, this is so incredibly valuable. And the, and the weird thing is, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate, everything you mentioned, I do or have done to some extent, but not systematically, systematically. like you're describing. Right. Like, like, do you have a time? What's your time to find these? Oh, you said 10 to a, 10, 10 a.m. is when you do this. Yeah, I do it at 10 a.m. And the reason I picked that time is because uh, if you send it early, like let's say I get up at 6.30. Well, if I'm texting people and they happen to be on the West Coast or Hawaii, they're going to be like, you POS. This is so annoying. It's like yeah, yeah. super early. Um, and then if, you, you know, if you're if you sending people to at a different time zone in New York at 10 a.m., it's like just after lunch for them or during lunch. But if they're in Hawaii, it's like 8 a.m. and they're not going to kill you. You know, it, it or 7 a.m., they're not going to be super pissed off. And everybody on the West Coast is like awake, had their coffee, you know, is probably not driving anymore at that time. So that's just kind of a generally good time. Like, look, do as you would do for your own time zone. If you live in Hong Kong, but most of your contacts are in New York because you're a banker, then take that into consideration. What you want to do is avoid catching people so early that they're annoyed uh, or during a commute when they can't look at their phone or they'll check their phone and be like, Jordan Harbinger. I, I know that guy, a guy from somewhere. I'll look at it later. I'm driving. And then they just never reply. You want to catch them when they're like farting around at their lunch hour, looking at their phone and the text comes in. That's like the only time they can reply. Or they just got to the office and they're checking their phone because they were just in the car for an hour, hour and a half or whatever. You know, you want to catch people when they might have a chance to respond because marketing companies who've done tests on this stuff, they say something like, it's like 99 point whatever percent of text messaging is opened and read within 10 minutes. And hmm. I wanted to find out when those texts were not opened and replied to. And it's when people are doing something where they can't actually get to their phone. And so that's usually just driving. Yeah, you know, that's very interesting because, uh, so you're right. So I think actually the number is something about 80% of texts are opened. As opposed to email, I think something about 7% of emails are opened. And that includes all emails. So when you get like, you know, junk mail that that ends up in your inbox, you know, 7% of the time people open emails. But when you, when I even get junk texts, I probably open sure. them. Sure. Because like, you know, because, and and there are, there there's like a, a company right now in beta called Community, which um, is almost like a social network, 
really based on SMS texting, just because again, there's this knowledge that texts at least right now are opened up much more than any other form of communication. So, so it's a smart idea. And I just want to address the, the compounding nature of this. Again, it feels like linear. Like if you're texting four people a day, then, and, and you do it, you know, 250 days a year. So every day, except weekends, then it's a thousand, then it feels linear as a thousand extra texts, uh, uh, to people a year. But the way to, the way it actually works exponentially is let's say I'm comparing myself to the general population. So every day, if I send these texts out, let's say I'm just texting or let's say I'm just networking 1% more than all of my peers or competitors. So just 1% more per day than all of my competitors. After a year, it's not 365% more. It's act because that 1% compounds, it's 3,800% more. So the, the effects of this are enormous and people do not realize that anything you do consistently and systematically that kind of enhances your career and knowledge and network and so on has this 38 X, uh, uh, return per year, which you can't get 3,800% in any other investment of money or time. No. So it's in incredibly valuable. And, um, th this is, this is it's, what, are, what else is in the six minute networking? Um, so I have a, a CRM that I use to keep in touch with people via email. And it reminds me how long it's been since I've talked to them. And it will remind me that like, Hey, you haven't emailed James Altucher in 90 days. And, and I can either do a drop down selection where I'm like, Oh no, we just talked. We just did a podcast or, Oh, he just texted me, but it looks at your Gmail and it says these people that you've selected as important, because you can add people to what's called buckets. And it's like, remind me if I haven't emailed uh, James Altucher in 90 days, remind me if I haven't emailed my cousin, Chris in 21 days or however long I select Fuck him. Yeah. Email James back, email James back, Chris, you know, sorry, buddy. But like you can select what sort of buckets you want. And then every day it gives you a digest. I take mine every week and I just batch it. And it's like an hour a week to catch up with dozens and dozens, if not a hundred plus people each week. And I send those people messages and it can do it automated, but I don't, I don't like to do that. I just like to actually yeah, yeah. Just type the email because that auto generated stuff is kind of BS. But um, it, it was designed for real estate agents to sort of do lead gen and stuff like that. But I use it just as a personal CRM. And it keeps me in touch with every show guest that's ever been on the Jordan Harbinger show. Um, it, oh, keeps me so valuable. In, it keeps me in touch with every publicist that pitches me stuff that doesn't just pitch me like garbage, like fake ass, you know, like crystal healers or something. It, you know, the good ones. And it, it keeps me in touch with like all of my old colleagues from my law firm when I worked on Wall Street. I'll hit them up, you know, every six months. Keeps me in touch with people that have spoken at events where I've also spoken. So I never lose touch with those people because I'm consistently reaching out and I'm like, hey, and, and people think, oh, I don't have anything to say to them. Trust me, if you think for like two seconds, you can say, even recently, my follow-ups have been, hey, David, been a long time since we spoke at uh, such and such event last last year at this time. Now we're not even allowed out of the house. Are you going stir crazy or do you have inbox zero and you're feeling good about it? Uh, I know you have kids because you can keep notes in the CRM. Like, are they driving you nuts? And then you'll get a response. It's like, no, we're doing great. We actually left the country. We live in Canada and we're in the middle of nowhere. We go fishing every day. It's awesome. And you're like, great. So you're like the only one keeping in touch with these people from that event. And that's 
that alone is just a numbers game. And if you're emailing, again, this doesn't take like six hours a week. It takes like an hour a week total to do everything. And what's the CRM called? It's called Contactually. Oh yeah, I, gosh! I even have talked to that company before, yeah. but I never, but I never followed up with them because I don't use contactually right. probably. Right. And this is again, I again, this is sort of the, one of those things where I look at this and like, oh yeah, I do this, except I don't. I don't. The, the key is is this uh, doing it consistently and systematically. And again, this is so valuable. And I can I can assure the listeners, like I've seen you start from scratch on this. And I've wondered, man, how did he just totally explode in growth again? <laughs> and this is this is really valuable. And I feel, and now I'm feeling like a little tense because over the years, I feel like I've been pretty good at this, but not like just just systematizing it a little bit more makes it like a thousand. Again, it's one of those things that you're probably ten times better at it than me, uh, just because you've systematized it. And it's it's. It's amazing. Okay, what's another thing? Um, by the way, I wanted to say with air with contactually, it's great, but it can be kind of pricey. So a lot of people might be like, "Whoa," because I think it's like sixty bucks a month or eighty bucks a month. So a lot of people will be like, "I can't do that. I'm a student, or I don't want to pay for that if I'm not sure I'm going to use it." Airtable, uh, which is I, I'm not quite sure exactly what this is. It's some kind of crazy powerful software that's all in the cloud. I, I don't know how to describe it, but there's free tiers of Airtable, and there's a template on their website called personal CRM. If you search for their templates and you can just click use template and it's, you can use that as your CRM too. It's like the name of the person you tag them as, you know, hiring manager or something like publicist. Um, you can tell you, you could tell it who introduced you when you last cut up and where they live, stuff like that. And so Airtable can also do it. Um, so that was, I want to mention that so that people don't think that this is out of reach for them. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is great. Uh, is, by the way, is it okay if I write about this and I'll totally yeah, please, attribute it to you? Please do. Yeah, please do. And just throw like the, cause the six minute networking stuff again is free. And it, it, it mentions all these options, how I use them, all the scripts. And it's just like 12, two minute videos basically. Well, 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 I, well, the way I'll write about it is, or, or talk about it is I'll always do it in the context of how did this guy, Jordan Harbinger, grow to even surpass where he was before. And it's, again, it's this idea of, of digging the well before you're thirsty yeah. and he uses these networking, and, you know, the most important thing is being able to ask others for help because then that is, is a way of leveraging, you know, your, your life experience because you've met other people. But, but the only way you can leverage that is if you still have semi, it's, it's like, it's like memory in a brain. You only remember things if those neural connections have been watered over the years. Otherwise you forget things. Yeah. So, so it's the same idea. You're kind of watering these, these, um, connections that don't necessarily need to be watered, but by watering them, you're keeping the overall networking environment or your overall brain, you know, strong. Yeah. People think that if they want to network, they have to go to these like really stupid time-wasting mixers all the time. Um, they think that they have to be salesy they think that yeah. they have to like be schmaltzy and schmoozy and throw business cards at people and you don't. So the way that I create the network, one, never go to a mixer. You should never go to any event that's not curated. That's like a rule. Um, what do you mean by curated? Curated is like, if it's like, hey, everybody come network, don't go to that. But right. if it's like, hey, we're only having business owners that have a 
uh, average monthly recurring revenue of a hundred grand or more, and only in the tech space for cloud-based software as a service businesses, we're doing a private happy hour at this bar in Manhattan, and it's it's the first Thursday of the month only. Um, please email me if you want to bring a friend who hasn't been before, and I'll make sure they're a good fit. That's like what the curator would say. Then you show up, and it's like only tech founders that are doing decently well in a business that's similar to yours. You don't show up and talk to somebody, and they're like, yeah, I'm thinking about becoming a life coach. You don't have those people at that event wasting your time or like somebody going there to be like, Hey, I'm an investment manager that has zero clients. Please give me your life savings and I'll invest it in expensive funds with high fees. Like you don't have those people in there. Right. Right. No, I, I totally agree with that. And, uh, so what, what else is in, uh, what's another networking technique that that you've used specifically that you feel contributed to your, the, the regrowth of your podcast? Yeah. So, so not only should you only go to curated events, cause that's where you meet more people that you can then keep in touch with. Um, I am constantly introducing people to one another. And and that has to be people that are inside your network already. Well, it doesn't have to be. It should be. And it's easier to do that. And a lot of people will say things like, well, I'm looking for people that can help me. And it's hard to find people that can help me. Stop worrying about who can actually help you. Because if you worry about that, you're going to miss all these opportunities that I, I, I say they're over the horizon. So like, you don't know that the person you met through this other person that you know already at freaking some cafe during a lunch, you don't know that that person later on down the line is going to introduce you to the person you hire to do animation for your podcast or to like set up, do the audio engineering for your show. Like you don't know that because you're not even thinking about starting a podcast yet. So that person couldn't have possibly pitched you for that. So you have to be really cautious about looking for the right person. And the analogy that I use is this, let's say I walk into a party that's at James Altucher's house. And I really need a corporate lawyer who can handle uh, a certain type of litigation. So I walk up and I talk to somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm a graphic designer. And right now I mostly work for Intel. And I'm like, crap, I don't want to be in a conversation with this person because I just need a corporate lawyer. So I'm looking around, I'm not engaged with them. I talk to them politely for a few minutes and then I excuse myself and I go to talk to someone else and I'm like, hey, what's going on? What do you do? And they're like, oh, uh, I'm the hiring manager for... Uh, this new startup that's uh, like a Uber competitor. And you're like, crap, I'm looking for a corporate lawyer. I don't want to talk to this person. Rinse and repeat for a hundred people. Maybe I don't even find the right person at that event. And it, and I consider it all a big waste of time. That's a sucky way to go about creating relationships. However, if I go in there and I talk to anyone and everyone, and I'm only looking for opportunities, not just for myself, but for other people that I already know, other people in my network, then I talk to the hiring manager of this startup and I say, all right, so what kind of people are you looking to meet right now? And she said, we need people who are C-suite or or some similar executives that have taken uh, app-based tech companies from 10 million to 100 million and beyond, and especially if they've taken that company public. And I'm like, okay, do I know anyone like that? Let me think. And I sort of put a mental note there. And then the graphic designer who I met or or whatever, who's mostly working for Intel, I say, so do you freelance? And they say, yes, I do. Okay, great. So you mostly do tech company type graphics. And he's like, well, I do motion graphics, you know, like commercials for things like iPads or, or, or like Microsoft surface devices that have Intel chips in them. And I say, oh, okay. So you could do like a startups, new tech gadget. And he's like, yeah, I love doing stuff like that. It sure beats showing off the same semiconductors every damn day. Right. So now I can find people that they should meet 
that they can help and that can also hire them or help them do something else. Now I'm just connecting people that I've already met and that I just met who are inside my network to one another. And that makes it scalable. Because if I'm trying to help people and I'm a graphic designer, then what? I just have to make them free graphic design forever? That sucks and it's not scalable for me and it'll put me out of business. And that's why people are like, I need to look at what's in it for me, not just help people for free. I got bills to pay. That's fine. I understand that. But the way you do that is not by giving people free websites if you're a web designer. The way you help other people is you connect nodes in your network to one another. You don't want this hub and spoke crap where you're the middle of everything. You want oh. an actual web. Oh my God. Like, A, I've written chapters in my books about this. Uh, and again, you probably do it a little bit more systematically than I do. But my my number one rule with networking is what I do, is what I call permission networking. So let's say I know someone who would be perfect for you. Let's say you're looking for an audio engineer and I know an audio engineer looking for a podcast to work on. Mm -hmm. I, I would first ask permission of both sides. Can I make this introduction? And only then I would introduce because a lot of times people send me an email. Hey, James, I just want to introduce you to someone who'd be a great podcast guest. I'm moving myself to BCC. Good luck guys. Yeah. And that, and now it's like a homework assignment for me right. and no one asked me permission to have this homework assignment. And maybe that guy would be a good guest. Maybe not. I don't know, but, uh, permission networking, I think is very important way for me to network because then it shows that I'm really respectful of people's time and I'm providing value. But your, your final point there, uh, 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 the hub and spoke model, again, we're talking about exponential versus linear. So in the hub and spoke model, you, you have a personal network of let's say hundred people. And then if you meet someone at a party, now it's 101 and then you meet someone on the street. Now it's 102. But when you start connecting the nodes of those hundred people, it's not a hundred. Um, it's not, it, it's not the power of a hundred people that you've networked with. It's the power of 10,000 because all the connect, all the possible connections between a hundred people is 10,000 connections. This is, uh, uh, you know, nodes connected in a graph, you'd have 10,000 lines instead of just a hundred lines connecting just you to each person. So that's where the exponential power of when you introduce two other people and you're not being transactional, you're not expecting anything to get out. You're not expecting to get anything out of this new introduction. Then boom, that is so powerful. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's extremely powerful. I don't know how exactly the math works, but you're right. It's like, there's, there are people that I'll routinely get emails from, and this happens almost like every week now, where someone will say, hey, Jordan, I just want to say a quick thank you, me and so-and-so, and I don't even remember introducing them, but they'll be like, me and so-and-so, we just founded this company where we're doing these live events and we want to have you come speak and our budget is, you know, X and we want to sort of like pay for you to come and show up because you're partially responsible for the success of this because we never would have met without you. And at our event, you know, I'll go there, speak, give an awesome, hopefully awesome, give a decent paid keynote. And then they'll be like, you know, everyone subscribe to Jordan's podcast. And then like this room with 1100 people in it at this event that I sort of set up by sending one email introduction and they did all the rest of the work. Now I've got all these people talking about me and being super thankful. And then if I ever need help, which I did when I was launching the Jordan Harbinger show, reaching out to people like that and saying, Hey, I've got this problem. Can you help me? Those people weren't just like, yeah, I'll tweet it. They were like, let me email our entire company list about your new show right now. Because when you, when we needed help, you helped, you hooked us up big time and it resulted in this big thing 
we the least we can do is make sure you don't like crash and burn with your new business. So let's do you like a really big solid favor like we would do for like a really close friend. And these are some of these people I've never actually even met in real life. That that is that is great. And I could see I could see now the pieces are coming together on how you were able to come back so strongly and then surpass even where you were. Uh, any other techniques and you could cover a lot in six minutes. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton, man. I'm telling you, like a lot of what I've created for the six minute networking course and that I teach on the Jordan Harbinger show is everything. Well, it's stuff that I use, but it's also stuff I teach to, uh, special forces, military, central intelligence agency, MI6 and MI5. I did like a thing for them, even though it, it's not like they're not telling you that that's what it is at the time, but it's like really obvious <laughs> when you do that. Um, they're using this. So a lot of people will say things like, oh, I'm already pretty good at networking. I'm like, okay, cool. But are you doing all this stuff systematically? Because if you're not, then you're leaving everything on the table. It's like, it's probably like those people who I'm sure you get this where people say, oh, I'm pretty good at, I don't know, investing. Oh, great. What's the last thing you invested in? Oh, well, you know, I mostly just track the markets. I don't actually put any money in. I mean, you'd be like, you're not good at investing then. If you just think you're good right. at picking stocks, but you never put any money on them, you're not good at picking stocks. Why would you, like, you're just telling yourself that you knew that Uber was going to be successful. If you really believed it at the time, you would have put some money on it. You know, like, what are you talking about? Right, no, I think I think that's the, um, the what's called the Dunning-Kruger bias where, where bias, where people always think they're better. Like, it's like nine out of 10 drivers think they're above average dr at a, a driver when it's, that's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. So, so, so I find that to be, the case, but that's also the advantage because you could say, okay, good, good for you. And then, you know, you, you have an edge over all of these people who already think they're good, but they're, but, and so they've capped out because they're not trying to get better, but okay. What's, what's another six minute networking technique that you've used? I'm, I'm going to use, I'm going to, I swear to God, I'm going to use all of these in my own life. Sure. And, and, and again, to some extent, it's like, you just pointed out, I'm like that guy who says, oh, I'm good at investing to some extent. I do all these, but this it's the systematically that, that makes it exponential have an exponential impact on your life. Exactly. Like I'll talk to people and I'll be like, are you trying it? And they'll be like, no, I'm naturally a really good networker. And I'm like, great. And then what's, what's sort of like tragic is undoubtedly at some point within the next year or two, cause I can see it's like a LinkedIn thread or something that per I've had people tell me they're great at networking. And then like a month or two later, they're like, I got laid off. What should I do? And I'm like, reach out to your amazing network that you said you had. And they're like, uh, the problem is it was only people in my office that I was really networked with. And it's not really a broad network. And you know, the whole industry is kind of suffering right now. And I'm like, so you only knew like people in your own company. That's not a great network. You're not a good networker. You're a guy who shows up to the office every day and talks to people. Like there's a huge difference. And it sucks to have to tell somebody to dig the well before you're thirsty. And then they go, and then you get the email that says, I'm thirsty. Now what? And it's like, start now. And they're like, yeah, but how do I accelerate it? And I'm like, you can't. The best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Hopefully you're not like broken, unemployed because that's a bad place to come from. It's like looking for a job. You, the best time to look for a job is when you have a job. Um, because when you yeah. don't have a job, then you're starting to be desperate. You're applying for stuff you're not qualified for or that you don't really want. That's not going to make you happy. Not good. So uh, one sort of, I guess you'd say like final uh, technique that I do for six minute networking. And there's a, there's a, a bunch obviously, but one that's really obvious and easy for everyone to do and has the, everyone has the tools already is look at the calendar, which hopefully you've kept for a while. And if you don't have that, then create it and make a list of everybody that you've spent significant time with over the past six months. Although with COVID, it's a little different, but like even significant time chatting online or working with or something like that, 
and then see if you're happy with the influence that, say, those 10 to 15 people have on you. Because you'll talk to a lot of people and they'll go, oh, yeah, you know, my roommate is kind of a downer. He just plays video games all day, smokes weed all day, he complains about his ex-girlfriend all day. That's not really somebody I want influencing me. But we don't think about it because we think, oh, that's just like John's attitude. You know, it doesn't affect me. But we know that it does. There's science called network effects now where you've heard of this, right? Where like if you have a friend whose friend smokes and you've never met that person, you're like point, you're like two and a half, whatever percent more likely to smoke yourself or like 10%. You know, that makes sense because everyone always says, oh, you know, there's that famous quote, I think from Jim Rohn, you're the average of the five people you right. spend time with. But if you think about it, those five people, they're the average of the five people they spend time with. Yes. So you're definitely going to be partly, uh, you're, you're going to be the average of the 25 people you're five spend time with. Right. So it makes, it makes sense. And you find, uh, you find with obesity research and stuff that like people who are obese ha are much more likely to have friends who are also obese. So think about that. So if you have a friend of a friend of a friend that's like really overweight, you have a, a higher likelihood of also eating poorly and doing things that keep you that way. This is so important. And I've always been good. I, I'll tell you, I've been good at the, you know, the, the five, five. So the, the five people I spend time with, I try to make sure, you know, you know, they're, they're the people I, I like the most. And I, and I, I do this like every few months I'll tweak like a bonsai tree who, uh, who is in my circle. And, uh, you know, and again, I do this permission networking, not as systematically as I would like. I, I, and I've even written about it in a systematic way, but I should do it more systematically. Uh, I, also never go to a mixer and part of that that's because I'm antisocial. The CRM of email, I'm absolutely going to do that. It's so valuable. Uh, the texting one to four people a day, every day, I should do that. I have, have not done that. That's great. Uh, uh, and, and figuring out the right time for me would probably be your 10 AM is my 1 PM. Uh, trying to think what else here. Uh, I think those are the main, the main things. And it's just been in, in also this concept of reverse sales I've always done, which is when I send a letter to somebody, I make sure there's the, it's the opposite of sales. Like I, like yesterday, for instance, I pitched an idea of, uh, for a TV show to somebody. And I said, I don't even, this would just be good for your company. You should do this with or without me. And this person who's a billionaire founder of a very successful tech company he wrote back instantly and said, no, 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 this sounds great. Uh, let's set up a call. So, you know, if you give without and you make it very clear that you expect nothing and you're very honest and sincere about that, then that tends to work. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It has to sort of be sincere. And, and you can be sincere and say, I'm trying to get my network going because I've been bad at it. Because a lot of people will email and they'll go or they'll write in six minute networking. They'll say something like, oh, um, what do I tell people about why I'm reaching out? And I'm like, don't make up some weird thing. Say, hey, I realized I haven't really like kept in touch with a lot of people and I wanted to change that. So I wanted to reach out, you know, no rush on the reply. I know this is totally random. And you'd be surprised at how many people go, you know, that's a really good idea. I'm glad you wrote to me. It has been a while. I've mostly been sitting at home watching Netflix and blah, blah, blah. Great to hear from you. The problems arise when people say things like, hey, uh, what's going on? just reaching out because you popped into my head and then people are like, uh, why would I pop into their head? Oh, they're probably making a list of people they can sell their like 
you know, healing candles right. to. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to reply. So let, let's say, though, uh, let's say you had on someone like, I, I don't know, Richard Branson on your podcast. And how do you, or, 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 or let's say you had on some famous movie star, like, uh, I don't know, let's say you had Tom Hanks on your, on your podcast. Yeah. How would you go about keeping in touch with people who, let's say, are in a, I don't want to say higher tier because it's not that hierarchical, but basically they have m many more demands on their time. Yeah. And in society's ranking system, they're, you know, it's harder to network with people who are, you know, famous or, you know, the, the absolute number one in their field. Uh, how do you, how do you go, how do you overcome that hurdle? Yeah. There's a couple of techniques that I use for this. So a lot of folks will be like, oh, well, like I'd, well, uh, it's probably a bad example, but I had the late, great Kobe Bryant on the show. And I was like, I'm going to keep in touch with Kobe Bryant, but you don't do that by being like, yo, Kobe, shoot me your number. Let's hang. Right. That's, that's unrealistic and doesn't make a lot of sense. But what you do is you find the person who has influence with that person. So you find their assistant and publicist who you spoke with and did all the logistics with who, who are like, you know, the COO of, of Granity Studios, which is his company. So I was keeping in touch with those folks on a regular basis. That's actually better. Like if you want to get a hold of me, you can reach out to me and I'll probably answer at some point. But if you really want to get a hold of me and like get me to do something, you should get a hold of my wife right? Like she's really pulling yeah. the strings. And a lot of people who are busy, they have those people in their life. It's like their COO, their secretary, their assistant, their publicist, whoever it is that has influence with them. That's the person you actually want to keep in touch with. Um, so I recommend people figuring out who those people are and then do that. The other thing you can do is a lot of people, and I, I taught a bunch of scientists uh, this stuff before, what you should figure out is not only uh, scientists, young scientists were asking me how they can get in touch with like really well-known, uh, influential, I guess is the, the term scientists. Like they, they feel like, Oh, I can't just show up at some conference and talk to this Nobel prize winning scientist. Like that person's not going to pay attention to me. And I'm not going to be able to tell them something about science that they don't already know. Cause they're like the leader in, molecular biology. What am I going to tell them about my stupid PhD thing that he could like do with his, in his eyes, in his sleep with his eyes closed. That's not going to work for me. So I say, Oh, look at their social media and, and, or find out what it is that they like personally. So if you try to reach out, I'll use myself as an example, because I don't, I, I don't think I can speak about any Nobel laureates with any sort of degree of authority. Let's say you reach out to me and you say, Hey, Jordan, here's this thing about podcasting. There's like a 90% chance I read that in pod news this morning or that I read about that somewhere else or that, you know, I've had people reach out and tell me about, tell me some news about a company that I advise or something. And I'm like, thanks, but you know, I'm on it. And it's not really that impressive. And I, I don't really engage with it that much. Like I appreciate the effort, but it, it's kind of like, okay, I got it. Um, and I, right. I might even forget about it. But if somebody finds something about, let's say North Korea, that's interesting. And they send it to me knowing that I used to be, that I ran tours to North Korea, that I've been there four times. I'm not paying attention to North Korea news like every hour of every day, um, far from it. So if somebody sends me a weird sort of factoid about North Korea, I'll read it and I'll engage with it. And they have a good chance of getting through to me on a personal interest that I probably am not always up to speed on. So I gave that bit of advice to these young scientists and they, there was one that gave a great example that I use to this day when I give talks about this. 
she found out that one of these scientists who was like a Nobel laureate, he loved squash, the game of squash, not like the, not like the vegetable, the, the game of the game of right. squash. And she was going to this conference where he was going to be. And she's like, I'm going to be waiting in a line of like 80 people to talk to him for like two seconds and tell him how great he is. I said, don't do that. Reach out on LinkedIn or find his university email, reach out, find a squash court near the event book the squash court. Doesn't even matter if you use it. You probably don't even have to pay. You just, you, you know, you pay when you get there. Let him know a few days early if you can't go. Ask him if he wants to get a game of squash in before his talk or after his talk and say you've already got a court. And it was like New York City. You can't get a squash court in New York by just walking into Equinox and being like, hey, I want to play squash right now. Never going to happen. So she rented this court uh, or reserved this court like three weeks or whatever, three months in advance Asked him if he wanted to get a game in. He said, it's impossible to get a court. She said, no problem. I already have one. Uh, who knows? Maybe it was 15 broad where we used to live. Um, right. And they went and played squash. And he's like, great. And the whole time they're chatting about what she's doing, her research, his research. She didn't need to wait in line with 80 people. He knows her now. He's got her email. She emails him every few months, probably not about squash, but you know, he knows who she is. She can reach him. He'll take her, her quote unquote call, even though the call is an email she's just jumped the queue ahead of like hundreds of other people that want to talk about this guy or guy's research or talk to this guy. Now, who do you think in a few years or in a few months, if she says, Hey, I heard about this opportunity in your lab, who's he going to pick this random person who dropped an email into a pile of 85 other emails or 185 other emails, or the woman that he played squash with that one day and has been talking to on and off for the last two years, who's going to get that gig? Her. You know, it's th th that technique also is, is so valuable. And again, I, I feel like not only have I done this, but I've written about it, but probably not as systematically as you. So for instance, this is 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago, I was raising money for a hedge fund that I was starting. And there was a guy I really admired who, uh, who was well-known, who I wanted to have as an investor in the hedge fund. So I read his PhD thesis from 1972 <laughs> And I wrote him about my notes from the PhD thesis and made, you know, and we had an active discussion via email. I never once asked him for money. Then he invited me to lunch. Then another day he invited me to dinner and it was dinner with him and his wife. And then eventually he invested in my fund. So stuff like that works. It's really, really powerful. As opposed to me just saying, Hey man, loved your book or, you know, thank God you're here or whatever. Yeah. You know, it works. It you know, so I, I just want to mention, by the way, what did you think of this format for a podcast? So we had no, this is just for the, the listeners. So we had no plan really on what we were going to talk about, but I feel Jordan, you and I have known each other now for, for six or seven yeah. years. And we've, we, we probably physically see each other maybe once every on average, probably every two years, maybe sometimes it's been three, maybe sometimes it's been one. And but most of the time we have a conversation is when it's recorded like this. And so I figured, you know what? I really just want to have a conversation with Jordan and ask him questions that I, that are almost personal questions that I've always been meaning to ask him, funny. but it just so happens that we always talk while we're being recorded. Yeah, that's funny. You're, you're right. I mean, I was at your house a few months ago. Well, actually it was probably a long time ago now that I think about it. It's probably like several months ago now. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably like six months. And I like this, but you have to be careful with this because I think a lot of like you and I are fine because we're both professional broadcasters at some level and we have years of experience doing this. The problem is if you do this with somebody who's like, uh, 
tech founder and they don't have a ton of media experience, they could come on and be completely nervous, unprepared, not able to articulate things, not able to sort of search their brain for the right kind of answer or not able to explain something very clearly. And so it's, it's, you are kind of rolling the dice, but that's why having, let's say like a celebrity on your podcast is almost always a good conversation because if you get Howie Mandel on your show, you don't need to go, okay, I've got this plan. Howie Mandel is just going to be Howie Mandel and you'll probably be fine as long as you don't blow it. And as long as you could sort of keep him corralled in like the right, you know, like not just running around the office or whatever a lot of these comedians do. Like as long as use wireless mics, I guess, when you go with those guys. But like, you got to make sure that you have some idea of where it's going. But for two people that really understand the media landscape, how to teach people things, it's always a great format to have it open and not have a ton of pre-scripted questions. I think it's, I think it's always really great to, to do that. I think that that part's well, really easy. Yeah, because you bring up a really great point. Like a celebrity, quote unquote, like Howie Mandel, it's not so much because he's a celebrity that is the benefit to the podcast. It's the fact that he's put in his hours learning how to, you know, keep an audience moving forward. Not not necessarily either entertained or informed. Like he knows how to how to pace it. He knows how to pace it with with in a podcast format or or in any kind of broadcast format. So that's the skill he has. That Howie Mandel's no different than you in this sense. So what makes the good podcast is not necessarily like, oh, I've got this celebrity on, but the fact that he knows how to do a good broadcast. He knows how to go for an hour and keep people informed and on the edge of their seats and entertained. Because sometimes I find having someone who's just a celebrity on, those are some of my worst podcasts because they actually are just too used to people just being fascinated by them and and they just sit back and enjoy the glory when they might not have that skill of of broadcast. Harry Mandel is, you know, a, a comedian. So comedians often have this skill too, thinking on their feet, making sure an audience of strangers are adequately entertained every 15 seconds and, and so on. Yeah, you're 100% right. There's a lot of different, yeah, if you just have some sort of actor on, they could just be like, whoa, I have to do something now. Uh, you're supposed to just fawn around me and like ask for my autograph. That you know, Or they have like, a lot of celebrities, you're right, a lot of celebrities will have like a 15-minute I can be really funny and entertaining and charming or five minutes, like what they do yeah. at a restaurant when they get mobbed. But they can't necessarily, and not, not many um, have this problem, I would say, but there's definitely some celebrities that are going to be impossible to connect with over an hour to 90 minutes like we've been doing because they never have to do that with people they don't know, ever. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I think... So I've been, I mean, I always am going to have, I think it's good to have well-known people on because A, there's a reason why they're well-known and there's things to yeah. learn, but I've been slightly moving the format to uh, more conversation-based with people I know will deliver value like like this one, or even uh, more storytelling where there's me and a foil who could occasionally ask questions or bounce stuff off me, but really it's me telling stories based on my own experiences. So I'm like the guest and the interviewer of my own podcast because that's how I initially built an audience was by writing my stories down. And I've never really done that on the podcast. So I've just been playing around with with uh, changing the format. Yeah, that, I, you know, I, I like it. I think I tend to over-prepare, but I don't always stick to the format. And I think for for anybody having a conversation or broadcasting a conversation, you should look to do that. Like you should, you can have a plan you know, you could read someone's whole book 
But if they start talking about something else and it's a better conversation, you got to just throw the plan out the window and not worry about it. I think in show business, they call it killing your darlings because like you're so psyched about doing this one scene, but then you start improvising and it's, it's amazing. Like I, I think that happened with the hangover movie. They wrote all this stuff and then they started just goofing around. And a lot of that stuff is what made it into the final product because it was just ridiculous. You know, it was funny. Well, well, it, it, you know, that, that killing your darlings is a, a big quote in uh, writing. So I, I have five kids, so I are constantly writing essays for either colleges or whatever. I was going to say you're constantly is. killing them. Yeah, basically, uh, it's uh, well. Well, the thing is, when they write these essays, I'm I'm telling them like, here's a beautiful sentence, and but it doesn't belong. You're not really adding any. It's it's what I call placebic information. You're not really adding. If you take it out, if you take the sentence out, you you've you've reduced the quality of the essay, not at all, which means you've improved it by reducing the number of words to get your point across. So killing your darlings is incredibly important skill in writing. Like I always advise people, even, even if you know this rule, write your whole essay out and then immediately remove the first paragraph and the last paragraph, and you'll see that the essay is better. Even if you already know this rule while you're writing the essay, it just, it just is magic how that works almost every time. And, but Oh, very few people listen to me because it's hard to kill your darlings. <laughs> yes, uh, it is hard, especially if you've worked really hard on something. And I think a lot of people, let's say they have uh, some some sort of scene that they wrote for a play and they're like, this is amazing. But you're right, it doesn't add to the narrative and they just keep doing it. The problem arises, I mean, that happens in business too. Like the, there's companies that come up with some sort of app or something and it looks beautiful and it's graphic designed really well. And the CEO, it was his idea and he hired his cousin to build the thing or his brother. And the company's like, this thing is not going to do anything for the bottom line of the company. And somebody somewhere has to make a tough decision and be like, this sucks. It's not going to happen. Um, happens with movies all the time. Um, and yeah. it can happen in podcasting too. Like I, I find people that stick to that don't plan they don't do a great job a lot of the time um people that over plan and stick to the plan mercilessly they don't do a great job because you'll find i i heard this example a long time ago so i can't remember what show it's from um i'll just say it doesn't well it doesn't even matter anyway but there was a doctor on there and she had been she was like a disease specialist or something she had been adopted from well, I'm, I'm ruining it here let me t let me think of how to tell the story so she this infectious disease doctor comes on the show and they have all these questions about infectious disease and you know how she got so good at detecting early detection, whatever it was. And she starts the show and says something like, oh, uh, sorry, I'm a little late. My parents were having their such and such anniversary. And the person said, oh, my parents just had an anniversary. Uh, you know, let me show you this photograph. So she gets out the iPad and shows like a photograph and she said, oh, your parents, turns out this infectious disease specialist, she was African-American, but her parents were white. And the host goes, oh. And she's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm adopted. I was adopted from Africa as a kid. And the host just goes into their pre-scripted questions. And I was like, I know. you do realize that the reason she's probably an infectious disease specialist is because she was adopted as a kid from a place where there's so much infectious disease and it, it very likely influenced her entire career trajectory and her entire life, right? And the journalist who was doing the interview just totally didn't get it and started asking about like research grants and the, and the show was lame. Yeah, no, I, I see that all the time. It's, it's so interesting. So in any case, uh, uh, Jordan, this was so valuable. 
I want to do this. I want to do a podcast again with you yeah. at some point soon. I, I want to pitch you all these, uh, or I want to tell you all these TV shows I've been pitching other people. Do it. And uh, get get your thoughts and and insights onto them because they they, they always overlap with everything we're doing. You know, I feel like podcast media is like one big overlap. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep picking your brain. This is gonna be the picking your brain segments of my podcast. I love it. I love it. I'd love to. Thank you very much. This is a fun opportunity. Good to catch up with you and uh, stay sanitized. Yeah, same to you. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs>